Welcome to the Change Management Review Podcast, where we bring the best of change management to you. In this Meet the Expert episode, Managing Editor Brian Gorman and Jake Jacobs, author of Leverage Change, Eight Ways to Achieve Faster, Easier, and Better Results, discuss Jake's overall approach to change, as well as specific change levers that he applies to the changes he works on. We hope you enjoy this installment of the Change Management Review Podcast. Welcome to the Change Management Review Podcast. I'm Brian Gorman, Managing Editor of Change Management Review, and my guest today is Jake Jacobs. Hi, Brian. How are you? Welcome, Jake. Thank you. Jake has been curious about why some organizations work and others don't since his first job on the assembly line of an ice cream factory making bomb pops and push-up bars. As a pioneer in the field of large group interventions, Jake discovered better ways for people and organizations to change. He has supported major change efforts with corporations, including Corning, Ford, Marriott, and TJ Maxx, as well as with the City of New York, the U.S. Forest Service, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, and the United Kingdom's National Health and Employment Services. The Illumination Project, of which he is founder and CEO, has created unique opportunities for some of the most important work in his career, further strengthening citizen-police relationships with trust and legitimacy. Jake is an adjunct faculty member in Notre Dame's Executive Education Program and has taught numerous other educational venues. His most recent book, which is the focus of our conversation today, is Leverage Change. Eight Ways to Achieve Faster, Easier, Better Results. That's something we all want, right? Yes. I, uh, I found that the clients that I worked with um, had these eight common complaints. And so I designed a lever kind of distilling what I've learned in 35 years of doing consulting work with all kinds of organizations, distilled them into eight levers or, or what I call smart strategic actions to address these problems. So Jake, you and I have talked before, we could talk for hours and days. We're not going to have time to dive into all eight levers. There are a few I do want us to, to get into. But before we do, could you briefly identify what each of these eight levers is? Sure. Yeah. So um, of the eight, as I said, each addresses a particular problem. So one is too much change or change fatigue and uh, pay attention to continuity is the lever for that. Often people complain that change takes too long and I designed the lever, think and act as if the future were now. There's also uh, another problem. People reject your change approach. So it's not invented here. Uh, these are the things about, you know, have you done it in this organization? Have you done it in our location? Have you done it in our size organization? All of those come back to a lever that says design it yourself. There's another, uh, people don't know enough to make good decisions. So a lot of times leaders look to people in the rest of the organization and they don't have an understanding of the strategic direction. And that is for me about the lever, create a common database. How can we get smart collectively so that we can act in alignment because we've got aligned understandings. 
all change efforts must begin from the top. And and this one, you know, can go, Brian, begin from the top, begin from the bottom, begin from the side. Any kind of an approach that locks you into the perfect steps that you're supposed to follow, whether that's right for you or not. Uh, I designed this lever that's called uh, uh, Start With Impact, Follow The Energy, which really gives you a license to be smart about where you want to start your change work. So many ask what's in it for me. So I don't know uh, if your listeners have WIFM out there, uh, but that's the acronym for what's in it for me. And I designed this lever, develop a future people want to call their own as a way to uh, counter that. And then the last one, which is uh, part of every organization I've ever been in, including my own, which is uh, people's plates are full. And so when people have too much to do and they don't have time for change, then making change work part of daily work is the lever that addresses that. Thank you. Before we dive into the levers themselves, you identify four elements that are important to consider in this work. The levers themselves, the resources that are allocated, the pivot point, and making sure you're moving the right object. The first two, I think, are are uh, clear to our listeners, could you talk a little bit about uh, the pivot point and making sure you're moving the right object? Yeah, absolutely. So this goes back to this story about a uh, third century BC Greek mathematician. If uh, this were a video podcast as well, you would see I have a, a chalk drawing I commissioned uh, 25 years ago of this third century BC Greek mathematician whose name was Archimedes, and he was famous for describing leverage by saying, uh, give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum on which to place it, and single-handed I shall move the world. So if you think of that fulcrum point, I mean, what the story goes is that Archimedes used to sit on the sideline. He was not a large man. He would sit on the sideline in these competitions where people were trying to push boulders and, you know, sort of the strongest man would win. And Archimedes would sit on the sidelines and wait until no one could push the boulder any further. And he would take a a small rock and put it next to the boulder and get a log, which was his lever, and slide it under the boulder and easily move it with what seemed to be superhuman strength because he had the power of leverage. So that pivot point, the closer it is to what you're trying to move, in Archimedes' case, this boulder, the more leverage works with you. right? But if you can imagine putting that that, that stone right next to you, and having about a 10 foot log and have that boulder on the other end of it, actually leverage is making it much harder for you to move that boulder. So what I talk about is being really clear, getting closer to that boulder is the same as getting closer to being able to define your results in really clear terms. Knowing what it is you're trying to accomplish is critical because if you use leverage uh, and you're unclear about it, you're going to end up with that stone sitting next to you and, and working like the devil and not budging it an inch. So that's where that pivot point comes in. And it's, it's you know, basic geometry, even for those who didn't like that in school, uh, I think they can get an image of what I was describing. The other one about um, what are you trying to accomplish? I uh, wrote a whole chapter in the book on results. And I did it because, you know, the wrong results with these levers, you can sink your ship a lot sooner, right? Faster, easier, and better. You can get into trouble 
if you're working on the wrong results. So getting the results right is essential. And there are lots of ways to put an insurance policy around that by engaging more people and by looking deeper at what's the root cause of this issue, by taking what I call uh, rapid prototyping. So you'll test out an answer and see how it works and then gather data. And then, so it's kind of what some people call action learning, but the rapid prototyping is a manufacturing term that says, let's take some quick runs at this, see what we can learn, see what's working, and then go with what's working. So getting the right results is, is kind of an ante to get in the game or, uh, your listeners would find me to be a very unpopular author if they're working on the wrong results with the right levers. Jake, thank you. Now I want to start diving into a few of these. As COVID-driven uncertainty combines with the great resignation, the first Mm. lever that you describe in the book takes on greater than usual meaning for, for organizations. And you mentioned this briefly earlier, pay attention to continuity. Can you tell us more about this lever and how it's applied in the context of disruptive environments? Yeah, absolutely, Brian. Uh, the, The problem, again, that this addresses is too much change or what gets called change fatigue in a lot of organizations. And when you're talking about uh, uh, the pandemic and when you're talking about a number of different changes with the great resignation and other things, it could be any change, could be change in the competitive landscape, it could be a change in what your culture is, uh, merger and acquisition, uh, new strategy, whatever these changes are, people are often inundated by them in organizations. And my experience, I've seen two ways that organizations typically respond to this. One, you have a choice to do less change, right? If you're overwhelmed by it, the the logic says, well, do less and and be whelmed by it, but don't be overwhelmed by it. And, And the problem with that answer is that people aren't making these changes up. They are needed for organizations to succeed. So leaders are not just changing for change's sake, although if you're not informed, lower in the organization, it may feel that way. So that's option one, less likely that that's chosen. The most popular option is, um, for want of a better term, called shoving it down their throats. And what this looks like is you just do the changes that are needed. And, you know, may the strong survive. And uh, some people, you know, what what you do is you compromise the quality of the change work you're doing and the effectiveness of what you're trying to accomplish. So I don't think shove it down their throats is a good answer either. The interesting thing about change, Brian, is that for a lot of people, most of them, um, change can be disconcerting. Um, It can be anxiety producing. It can be fear producing. Um, And it can get in the way of your confidence. So these are all negative things. There are a few of us out there, you, me, and a couple listeners that embrace change and we we love it and it's why we do what we do. But this problem with change can be counteracted through paradox. And through paradox, what we do is we don't look at change anymore. So all those books, all those lectures, all those podcasts focused on change, what I believe paradoxically is that you need to pay as much attention to continuity 
as you do to change. Because what continuity brings with it is confidence. It brings clarity with it. It brings conviction with it. All this anxiety gets alleviated because I know how to do what I'm already doing. And a lot of times in change work, people drop the ball on what they've done well in the past and they pay a steep price for that. It used to be a core competence, but we took our eye off the ball, slips through the cracks, and now we've got another problem that we've got to deal with. So this pay attention to continuity shows up in a lot of ways. I mean, while you're changing, can you pay attention to your core values? Can you, I had a, a client, a leader, who um, had a, a major strategy and, and business process change that was underway in the organization. And what Paul did is he always started by asking people what needs to stay the same. What are we not going to change around here? And the, the remarkable thing is most things don't change. Even in the biggest transformation effort, most things don't change. So if you can take an organization and have them start paying attention to continuity, you can do this in writing memos. You can do this in town hall meetings. You can do this in, in team meetings or staff meetings. And you start by asking, okay, what are we doing really well? that we need to keep our eye on. And people have that confidence. They sit up in their chairs, they're ready to work. And then when you bring this conversation about change along, it, it fits with reality. It's like two sides of the same coin. And if we ignore continuity, we're ignoring half of reality. In reading this chapter, it brought to mind really what I heard so often two years ago, everything's changing. And the, the human mind can only focus on so much of what's happening around us. So if, if I go into the day with a mindset that everything's changing, I lose touch with that continuity. If I go into the day with the mindset around continuity, yep. then I can also make room for change. So, yeah, and the thing I would say, Brian, is, you know, I, I joke about this in, in some of my keynotes that... Um, there's a futurist every year who will come out with a book saying there's going to be more change in the next 10 years than there has been in the previous 100. And then you know what comes out the next year? Another futurist remarkably comes out with a book that says in the next 10 years, we're going to have more change than the previous 100. So, you know, this, this notion of there's too much change, well, we're being told that, but the way that people are dealing with it, I think, creates more mischief than help. And that's where continuity comes in. Thank you. One of your levers, think and act as if the future were now. Why is this important? And how do you apply it? Sure. So this one deals with change being too slow. And there are a lot of leaders who uh, are challenged by this because for competitive advantage, these changes need to be made. Right. And you can feel like you're slogging through mud on the way to the finish line. Now, think and act as if the future were now is also a paradoxical approach in the sense that what we typically think of as the future is something that's going to unfold before us. We wait for that future to occur at a later point in time. And, you know, that that's logical for people listening. They probably go. Why is he telling me this? Well, I'm telling you this because there's another way to look at the future. And the future, you can think and act as if the future you prefer is occurring 
right here and now in the present. So I was working in an organization. They said they wanted to have a more participative culture. And the senior executive team was working on this sales issue in one of the regions and they got at loggerheads uh, by lunch. There was no solution. There were two options. There were a lot of disagreements. And uh, I said, well, you said you wanted to be a more participative organization. And they said, well, yeah, of course. And I said, well, who else needs to be in the room to be participative about this and to have the right information available to you? And so we made a list of the people that needed to be by name, people who needed to be in the room. And there were like 15 people who had information, which goes to another lever about create a common database. But these 15 people got invited into the afternoon. Now, the ones who weren't in the office were called on the phone. They were video conferenced in. But what happened is they started to think and act as if they were a participative culture. And by doing that, you start to live the future now and it accelerates the pace of change. And then when people look to the left and right and they see uh, colleagues doing business in new ways, right? Now I'm starting to jump on a moving train. There's already momentum to do business in new ways. And so I don't have to stick my neck out. I've got to jump on board that moving train and make sure that I'm doing business in new ways. So it creates a virtuous cycle. And it all goes back. I read a book in the 80s by Stan Davis, and he wrote a book called Future Perfect. And what he said was you need to manage. You're not in your head. This is one that you're familiar with. He said, you need to manage in the future perfect tense of the verb. And what that is, is as if something had already happened. And so if I act as if the future had already happened, I can change my behavior immediately. And I don't have to wait for years, even culture changes that people say take years. I've seen organizations achieve in six months because of this mindset that says, we're not gonna wait for the future to unfold. We're gonna grab any image that we have of that future and start living it right here, right now. Jake, if I can add some neuroscience to that in working with my clients, we actually begin by creating a story, not about the future, yeah. future that will yeah. unfold, but a story from the future. Stories from the future, head, heart, gut stories, you actually are beginning to lay new neural networks before you take the first step forward. That's that's brilliant. And and the uh, neuroplasticity says that our, our minds are built for this. So now I want to have you say, if I'm thinking and acting as if the future were now, is this the present or is this now the future? And when that gets to be a confusing question, I think that's good news because that means more and more of that future, you're grabbing hold of it and bringing it back into the present. So I think the brain research is right in line with it. So I want to dive into start with impact, follow the energy, because virtually every change management approach that I'm familiar with either starts at the top and cascades down or starts very rarely at the bottom and unfolds up. Right. And you're saying no to all of that. Right. I'm I'm saying be able to say no to all of it. I'm not saying that it's wrong to start at the top. And sometimes it can be easiest and best. But what I am saying is 
step back and think strategically about your organization and the change you're trying to create and look for where there's impact. Where can you make a difference? And sometimes this is in where the work is the easiest. And people talk about quick wins. I talk about strategic wins. So sometimes going after something that's a little harder, but doing it early will earn you points with people who are resisting change, right? So you start with impact and then follow the energy. Where does the organization want to do its work next? I actually believe in living systems theory. And what that says is the organization itself is an organism. And so based on that, there are paths to follow. And I, I have uh, started clients. I had, a, I had a client that I worked with. It's a 10,000 person organization. They just laid off a thousand people. And they called me up and they said, we want to do a problem solving session. We want to invite 40 people and we want to try and stem the tides on turnovers. I listened to this and, you know, that's not going to do the job. 40 people doing problem solving for a half day. It's not going to do the job, but I know to start with impact and follow the energy. So where's the impact was anywhere in this organization that I could start working. And I got there and ended up that, that we raised the number to 200. I've got experience with large groups. So there were 200 people. Long story short, Brian, this ended up as a two-year transformation effort that was written up in Business Week and Fortune because I said yes at the very beginning, because that's where the impact was. Had I said, no, we've got to start at the top, then I'd have been debating with the senior leadership team about what they needed to do, what their role was. I might have a very large book. I mean, I, I have clients who believe differently and they have a very large book of every step that's supposed to be taken, which design it yourself says, maybe that book's right for you, but, but maybe it's not. So this notion of design it yourself is you've got to figure out what's right for your organization. Start with impact says you've got to figure out, do the hard lifting to say, where is it going to make a difference? And don't do this lifting alone. They often work with what we call design teams, a microcosm of the whole organization, because that's where the wisdom is. And so and, and it's also an insurance policy. It just ensures that you're going to get closer to a good answer from the very get go if you engage more people. So some people are like, you're the participation guy. And I say, maybe sometimes when it's right, that's really helpful. But when it's wrong, what you do is you get a lot of confusion and you get a lot of infighting because there isn't enough direction. So start with impact means find where the impact is and then follow that energy of where the work wants to go. So I want to tackle one more and you mentioned it briefly earlier, that old radio station, WIIFM. What's in it for me? Right. Right. So the what's in it for me is a very common question. And most people see that as a problem. They see it as people being selfish. You know, they're resisting and they, they want to get their payout on this deal, right? And, and so in some way they're wrong for worrying about themselves. The, the worldview that leverage change comes from says, 
that's smart. That's called enlightened self-interest. If you can't tell me what's in it for me to make this change, then maybe you should be thinking about the change a little harder and you should be talking with me about what is it that I want so you can build that in. But the what's in it for me, what you have is a problem that people don't see themselves in the future. So the lever for this one is develop a future people want to call their own. And when you develop a future, and, and the best way to do that is with the people that you hope to be in the future with, right? So I can't develop a future for you and hope for the best, right? Now I'm, now I'm playing a betting game with the organization and where we're headed. But develop a future people want to call their own. Now you don't have that resistance. People want to be part of that future. And they'll want to be proud of calling it their own. So this notion of what's in it for me comes off the table. I don't worry about what's in it for me when I see a future that's engaging and exciting and challenging and calls forth my better self. I leave that what's in it for me behind and I don't even carry that baggage with me because I see this future that I want to claim for myself and for my colleagues. As I said early on, Jake, we could go, could go on for hours here, but I'm not sure anybody wants to listen to podcasts that are hours long. So we're, we're going to wrap it up. But before we do, any last words of wisdom, true wisdom for our listeners? Yeah, I think that um, this was something that was told to me very early in my career. Um, man's name was Ken Benny and he was an organizational change agent. <clears throat> and I said to Ken, um, you know, I have a lot of passion for my work and you can hear it in the conversation we're having. And with that passion, I said to him, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm not actually fighting the good fight? What if the other person is fighting the good fight and I'm misguided, right? Because I have a lot of passion about this leverage change and how do I know it's right? And what Ken said, which I carry with me to this day, and it really helps me be able to take a stronger stance for leverage change and what I believe in. Ken said, the clearer it is that I need to revisit the question, the more certain it is that I need to ask that question. So what he was saying is the more passionate you are, the more you need to check yourself against the reality of what's going on, the more you need to listen to people who see the world differently than you, right? So for me, Ken Benny's words of wisdom were really helpful back then and they're helpful now because it gives me permission to take an extreme position because I wake up every morning wondering, giving it credence to say, what if leverage change may not be the most helpful thing for everybody? And then I can take that position that says, let's make sure that it is. And I learn along the way, clients have taught me about these levers and being able to see how do you take them to an individual coaching relationship? I know you have a lot of coaching relationships. These levers work just as well at the individual level as they do at the team, as they do at the organization. And so having that question, that voice in my head that says, are you on the right path? It still echoes from 35 years ago when Ken Benny said it. And I thought, 
that's going to save me. That's going to save me from my own passion and make sure that my clients benefit at the end of the day. Jake, thank you so much for your time and for your wisdom. Thank you, Brian, for the opportunity. I, I really do appreciate it. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Change Management Review Podcast with Brian Gorman, Managing Editor of the Change Management Review, and Jake Jacobs. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and like us on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.